You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good. Um, Let me just say thank you. Appreciate so much your acknowledging my five years. Greg's gone. He's traveling. He's off on work. He, no, he's not. He's, he's off fishing. See, he was, ter- he was terrified they'd drag him out of here and stone him today because he was the chairman of the pulpit committee. <laughs> so uh, I got to know Greg and had a, immediately had a tremendous amount of respect for him and uh, trusted him. Uh, which was unusual at that point in my life five years ago, but I did. I found somebody that I could uh, trust and believe in and count on. He was uh, a man of God and a man of integrity, and I grew to respect him greatly at that time. We, you, you more rescued us than you realize, but we're glad we're here. And uh, we're thankful to be with you. And I want you to take your copy of God's Word, and I want you to look with me to the 33rd chapter of Exodus. We've been in Exodus now for a good period of time. And uh, if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been looking at the 32nd chapter, uh, such an incredible chapter where Israel wanders off, walks off deliberately into sin even in the presence of God, which makes chapter 33 uh, the more unbelievable. Right in the midst of the presence of God, they rebel against God, they walk off, and they leave what uh, their commitment that they had made to God to be obedient to God. So that's where we begin this morning, 33rd chapter. Years ago, and this happens occasionally, in fact, I think it happened just last year, But several years ago, there were three major airports in the Midwest, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and um, the airport at Kansas City, Missouri. All shut down. All of their FAA towers and radars just shut down. All of a sudden, without any kind of warning, they just went out. Now, that wouldn't mean anything to you and to me sitting here in Birmingham, Alabama, But if you're flying through their airspace, that's a life or death issue for you. And uh, you would probably think about it a great deal. It would make a great deal of difference. And the reason, I mean, the pilots would know what runway do we come in on if we're landing in one of these airports? Uh, How fast would we need to be going? What, you know, um, how fast would we need to descend? Can we move from one um, altitude to the to the next out, all of these things that just shut down. And the reason they shut down was because of this huge, enormous flock of Canadian geese, the most worthless animal in the world. Uh, These Canadian geese, just a, a massive flock of these things, just flew over these airports. And these systems are designed, these radar systems are designed to block out birds. But there were so many of them so fast that they all could, it just simply could not handle 
all of that at one moment, and they just simply shut down, endangering the lives of literally thousands of people flying through that airspace. Now, that happens in life. Uh, so often in life, there's so many things that just pile up into life, especially on weeks like this. This has been, um, we're in the midst of, uh, you know, the 4th of July. This is, we had a, 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 a holiday weekend last weekend, a holiday weekend this weekend, right in the middle. We had two Mondays. Caleb Gibson was saying that a minute ago, and that's exactly what it was like. He's like a week with two Mondays, which is horrible, the, it, you know, really, honestly. But this whole week has just been, there's so much stuff that gets on our plate, so much stuff that gets in our schedule, so many things during the course of a year that just pile up. And when you have extended family or family and you've got children or grandchildren, all their activities are piled on top of that. Let me tell you, you get to a place where you are so, you, you, you are so, you just shut down. And what shuts down generally in life is the guidance and the direction and the instruction of the one person we should be listening to, and that's God. Now, that has happened now to these Hebrews. They've piled into their lives in such a short period of time. I'm convinced that within three weeks of Moses being gone, it didn't take the full 40 days, but within three weeks of his being gone, these people were already willing to jettison God and to put into their lives all of these idols that they had worshipped in Egypt, and they start out with a calf. All of these gods that they had left behind, now they suddenly pulled back into their lives. All of the immorality that was taking place when Moses does show up and he sees it and he finds it, and uh, there is the result of all, all of this piled into their lives and it literally shut out the presence of God. It literally shut out the guidance, the instruction, the direction, the leadership, all of that of God in their lives and in the nation of the people. And that's what we've looked at really for the last three weeks. But I want you to understand as we begin chapter 33, I want you to look at this and I want you to realize that the greatest factor in your life, not your education, not where you got your education, not your job, not where you live, not your diploma, not your position at work, the greatest factor in your life will either be the presence or the absence of Almighty God. Because no matter what diploma you get, you can go and bow down in front of that diploma three times a day. It is not going to tell you the direction you need to go in life. Um, it, you know, regardless of what it is in your bank account, you can go by the bank and you can say, hell bank, you know, with all of my savings, it's not going to give you direction in life. So the greatest factor in your life and in where you are headed is going to be the presence of God. Now, these Hebrews are going to leave Mount Sinai. They are there for 11 months, almost a year, right at a year, uh, that they are here at the base of Mount Sinai, but they're going to leave there. They're going to go somewhere. But at this point, they have literally shut out the presence of God, which means there is no guidance, there's no direction, there's no instruction, there's no one there to lead them in the direction that they need to go. 
Now, we settled up, and in fact, let me show you the last verse of chapter 32, and we'll roll into the first verse of chapter 33. The last verse says this, verse 35 of Exodus 32, then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron had made. Now, there were 3,000 that were killed. We looked at that last week, but you need to understand everybody suffered because of this sin. Sin has consequences. Even when God forgives, and look, what we're about to read, read, God is going to forgive them. But their sin still carried a consequence to it. Chapter 33, verse 1, the first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to understand that God can withdraw his presence from his people. Now, I'm not talking about the world, but I'm talking about his people. These Hebrews were his people. Moses is going to hammer that, by the way. Uh, I don't know if I'll have a chance to mention it, but if you keep watching through chapter 32 and into 33, he keeps hammering away, these are your people, these are your people. God keeps telling Moses, these are your people, lead your people that you led up. Moses keeps coming back, no, 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 they're your people, God. They're your people. You, you brought them out. So just keep watching that, whether I bring it out or not, you're going to see that over and over. But God can and he will withdraw his presence from his own people. Now, that's what he's done here. Then the Lord spoke. Now, watch this as we look at this, because it begins with tremendous word of grace. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt. You see that? God keeps saying, these are your children. I'll tell, she's not looking at me. These are your children, they're not mine. So God is saying, to Mo, these are your people. These are your children. And so he says, these are the ones you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it, into verse 2, I will send an angel before you. Now let me just stop right there. Listen to the grace of God here. This is a tremendous word. He comes and he says to him, okay, guys, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to forgive the sin. I'm going to forgive what you have done. And we are going to continue in the direction that uh, you've been going. You're going to go over into the land. Look at the certainty of this. The certainty is this. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. It was as if God would be saying to us, I will drive out the Chinese communists. I will drive out the radicals in Russia. I will drive out the communists in Cuba and the communists in uh, Venezuela. That's what he's saying. I'm going to drive your enemies away. I'm going to, there is a certainty. I promise this. I'm not only a covenant making God, I'm a covenant keeping God. I will keep this covenant and I will drive these enemies these pagans, these who will oppose you, I will drive them out. There is the certainty that's going to happen. Now, that's a great word. In fact, let me tell you something. I was answering a question this week that somebody wrote me, and I, I don't remember who it was, but they wrote me about security of, the, of those who believed in God in the Old Testament. Here is a great verse for it. I believe once saved, always saved, not because I'm Baptist, but because I read the Bible. And the Bible teaches it. 
And uh, right here, you even come to the Old Testament and these people had been involved in unbelievable sin and yet God comes back and he spares them and he's going to continue to use them. Now, I wanna just tell you, you need to just shout at that point and say, thank you, Jesus. That's a good word from what they have been involved in and yet God says, I'm still going to see that you get into the land. And this is what I'll do. Now look at the surety. That's the certainty of it. Look at the surety of it. The land is exactly what I've told you. You go up, verse three, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, it's a way of saying this is a land of, you know, all the resources you will ever need. It's a land where you can plant anything and it will grow. It's a land full of water. It's a land that will grow grass, milk. You've got to have grass if you're going to have milk. And uh, you've got to have bees, so you've got to have flowers. You've got to have all of that if you're going to have honey. And those were the two things that were primary in describing what was a prime piece of land in that day and time. He says, there is a surety that what I've told you about the land is absolutely true. You can take it to the bank. That when you get there, you will, you will be stunned with how rich in resources this land is, but don't miss something here that is critically important. Look what he says in verse two. I will send an angel before you. Now church, you cannot, you can't just read through this stuff and let that get by because God has already told them twice something different. If you've got your Bibles, go with me back to chapter 23 of Exodus and verse 23, when God is speaking to them about the conquest of the land, he comes and he says in verse 23 of Exodus 23, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, I will completely destroy him. But do you see the difference? He says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to still do that. But did you pick up on the difference? My angel versus an angel. You can't be watching Braves baseball and do your daily Bible reading at the same time. You got to watch this. Look in chapter uh, 32. I believe it is chapter 32 and verse 34. You're going to see this again right there. He comes and listen to what he says. But go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angel. That is the genitive of possession. Well, it would be if it was in the the Septuagint, it's a genitive of possession. My angel. Anytime you see in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord or specifically uh, referred to as my angel, it was always a direct reference to the presence of God. And personally, I believe, Billy Graham believed, David Jeremiah believes, a lot of uh, theologians believe that the angel of the Lord or my angel in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ before the incarnation in Bethlehem. So now he comes and he says, not my angel, he says, I will send an angel to go with you. Now I make a great deal out of that because what God was saying to them was this, I am removing my presence from your midst. 
I'm going to give you everything that I've promised you. I'm going to give you all of this protection. I'm going to give you all of this safety and security. I'm going to drive these people out from the land so that you'll have no difficulty, no hardship. And I'm going to give you all the blessing that comes with the land of Israel, except for this one thing, I will not go with you. Now, I've got, to, I've got to be honest at this point, and I've got to tell you that this week in working on this, thinking about this, it really kind of worked on my own personal life, and I had to ask myself the question, would I be happy with that? If God just suddenly appeared to me and said, okay, I'm going to give you everything that you want. I'm going, there's going to be, listen, there's a certainty that I'm going to do it. There's a surety that it's going to happen. I'm going to give you everything that you got. I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you all the things that I've promised to give you. Uh, when you came to me, the only thing is from now on, I'm not going, you'll not know my presence. Now, the question that I asked was, would I be happy with that? And the question that I asked, and I thought I need to ask you is, how many people in the church would be happy with that? If we could say, hey, God will give me everything that I've asked for, everything that I want. God will give me everything that's good. God will give me all the protection that I need in life. Nothing's going to happen to my family. Nothing's going to happen to me. And he's going to give me all this blessing and, and, uh, and not his presence. Well, I won't ever feel, you know, conviction again. I kind of like that idea. I kind of like the idea that God won't be standing there pointing his finger at me saying, you shouldn't do that. I'd kind of like it that God's not standing there with arms crossed, shaking his head no. I kind of like it that I don't have a preacher standing up there laying all this hard message on me that I'm going to be free to do whatever I want to do, but God's going to give me everything anyway. I wonder honestly how many of us in the church, not this, just this church, but how many of us call ourselves Christians would say, deal. That's convicting. At least it's convicting to me. I'm certain when you think about it, it'll be convicting to you as well. It's an interesting thought. Because you see, these people were not atheists. They believed in God. In fact, they believed in more than one God. In fact, if you go back just a chapter to verse one of chapter 32, it's these very people who come to Aaron and say, come make us a God who will go before us. We want a God. We want guidance. We want direction. We want instruction. Now, here's the difference. We want a God, but we want him to guide us in the way we want to go. We, we'd like a God who will give us leadership, but leadership in the direction that we want to go. Not the direction he wants us to go, but the direction we want us to go. So give us a God that will lead us up from here. Only give us a God that will let us indulge in all the things that we want to do. So it was not that they did not want God. Oh, they wanted God. They wanted any kind of God they could get that would bless them and give them a sense of direction. But the fact of the matter is they wanted a God who would lead them the way they wanted to be led. I don't know if you're listening to Mornings with Mac. Let's just take an account. No, uh, but on Monday mornings, I'm, I'm still going. I've been in the Gospel of Mark, it seems like forever, 
But, and I'm right in the middle of dealing with this whole thing with Pilate and Jesus. And, uh, you know, we always say that Pilate, that Jesus is on trial before Pilate, but he's really not. Uh, Pilate is on trial before Jesus in all honesty. And, and you look at that and you begin to think about this. Here, here is a guy who has no character whatsoever, and yet he finds himself in the presence of Jesus Christ, and he is longing to find a little bit of integrity in his own life, and he can't find it. Here are these people who have had the presence of God, but now the presence of God is gone. It's gone. Will God do that? Yes. In fact, I can take you to two passages. I can take you to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in 1 Samuel 16, you read this, Saul. Saul was a man of unique ability and unique physical features. He was the tallest man in Israel, the Bible says. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He, he became king of Israel. He was a natural born, at least natural looking leader. And he was going to lead Israel but he continuously sinned and went back to sin, disobedient to God's word over and over and over until the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord withdrew his spirit from Saul. Um, I can take you back to the book of Judges and in Judges, you're gonna find the exact same thing in Judges uh, chapter uh, 16 as well. You're going to find a uniquely gifted guy. In fact, nobody was gifted like Samson. Nobody else in all of Scripture had the gifts that Samson had. He was unique in so many ways, and yet the Bible says, and I'll quote it in the King James, he wist not that the Spirit of God had departed from him. I wonder how many churches meet today, and they have no clue that the Spirit of God is gone. I can take you to the book of Ezekiel and show you that's exactly what was going on in the temple of God uh, in Ezekiel's time. They were still going to the temple of wor to worship and God's spirit had already left the temple. It was gone. It was gone. Well, God will and he can take his spirit from his people. But now let me show you a second thing. Here's the second thing and that is conviction really does God's people good. The conviction that comes. Now, let me, let me stop right here. Let me just do a little teaching for just a moment because we confuse conviction and guilt. We run the two together and you shouldn't do that because conviction is from God. Conviction, in fact, is from the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus tells us in John's gospel. I'm going to take you over there for just a moment. I, I think it's so important that you see it, that conviction actually comes from God. John chapter 16, and look at this, verse 8. Jesus speaking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is just hours away from his own crucifixion. Uh, but he's talking to these disciples about the Holy Spirit coming. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. I don't go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And watch this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
You see that work right there, that, that little word right there, convict? Do you know what it is in the Greek? Uh, it's an interesting little word that comes out of uh, the courtroom. Elegeo, elegeo, almost like Lego, elegeo. It is a word that came out of the courtroom that meant to cross-examine cross somebody that was sitting in um, the jury seat, uh, somebody that was sitting there in the, in the defense seat. He's going to cross-examine that person. And the idea is to cross-examine to get a conviction or a confession out of them. So the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us in an effort to cross-examine us to get us to confess that sin is sin. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit. That comes from God. Now, guilt is a different thing. Guilt comes from the flesh, which is another way of saying it is a tool of Satan in your life. Satan comes, the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction so that you will run to Jesus. Satan comes to bring guilt so that you will run from Jesus. What did Adam and Eve do? There was no conviction there. They ran from God and they did what? They hid so that God has to call them out. Where are you? So guilt comes, it is a, it is a tool of Satan that comes in a believer's life to bring me to the point to where I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I, I, I pull away, I won't come out when I feel those things. I go and I seek to hide myself in my sin and just sit there in my guilt because it spirals me down and down and down. Now I've gotta take you to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter seven because you need to hear Paul on this. 2 Corinthians chapter seven, speaking to a church, writing to a church that desperately needed to fall under conviction. He says this in verse nine, I now rejoice. Now Paul is rejoicing. Are y'all okay? Okay, all right. I now rejoice. I just want to know. I don't want to lose anybody. Now that you were made sorry, he says, I'm not rejoicing that you are sorrowful, but I really am. <laughs> Look at what he says next. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. I'm happy that that sorrow brought about repentance in your life. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Do you see that? That you are made sorrowful, that you are convicted to the point of repentance. That's according to the will of God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. It brings about contrition. It brings about confession of sin. You never feel better than when you confess some sin that needs to be confessed. Amen. So he comes and he says, it brings this. He says, it is without regret. You don't regret confessing sins once you confess them, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We listen to the devil too much, too much, too much, too often that we will not say, you know what? I was just wrong. That was just sin. God, I want to come clean about it and confess to you. But we would rather just sit there and stew in our guilt. Now, thank God. Now, that's a lot of information. I ain't even, let, let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. 
And just keep that all in mind because here in Exodus 33, let me, let me show you what happens here. When the people heard this, that God said, my presence will not go with you for I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. You're liable to do something like this again. I'm just going to zap you when you do it. Now, God's not out of control. God's saying this for a purpose. The people, look, verse four, the people heard this sad word. It's a sad word for them. They went into mourning. Now the word literally means Hebrew is a picture language and it, it's the concept of walking around with your head down like this. And that just portrays, it's a picture of mourning. It's a picture that something sad has taken place. Uh, something that has grieved you greatly, and it means to walk along with your head just down. Well, if you've never seen people do that, I, I, we had the privilege of going into Romania and going into uh, Ukraine and going into communist countries after the wall fell, after the wall came down, and we could get into Hungary and we could get into Romania and get into Ukraine and then eventually into, into Russia itself. I, I want to tell you, that it is something to watch a mass population of people walk like this. Nobody's ever looking up like this, but they walk like that. that which, anyway, it's, that's what they did. There was a sadness here. There was a, 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 a repentance that was going to take place. And listen to what it says. They went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you're an obstinate people. You are hard headed. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do. They had already done that. They had already acted before God said this. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves. Now, what was it that they did that they gave to Aaron to make that golden calf? They stripped the earrings out of their ears. They stripped the earrings, the ornaments that they had in their ears. They stripped them off, gave that. Now they come and they strip off all of the rest of the gold that they had. All of that, they take it off. And the implication of verse 6 is that they take off their ornaments from Mount Horeb. How many of y'all have a uh, translation that says onward? Okay. What's somebody else have? It's early service. Listen, it's not even football season. We ain't got to go home. What does it say? Anything other than onward? Let me tell you the implication of the verse is that they take these ornaments off, these gold bracelets, these rings, this jewelry, all of this. I told you, you don't need that stuff. It's ungodly. You take off, I'm saying that for my wife's benefit. You take all this stuff off, the understanding is they took it off and they never put it back on again. Now that was their intention right here is that it goes off and you say, how do you know that this is conviction and not guilt? Because I know what they're feeling on the inside. They've heard this sad word. They're, they're convicted on the inside, but then they demonstrate this repentance on the outside. Now I could take you, if I had another 15 minutes, I could take you from this experience here over to the book of Numbers where they're in the, pretty much the same situation again. And there, 
the repentance is not real. And uh, there is tremendous loss among the people of God. Here, it is real. You can trust that what's going on here is real repentance. And so conviction, listen, if you're here and you say, I get under conviction when I come to church, well, let me tell you something. You need to thank God for that. It's the moment that you can sin that you don't fall under conviction that let me tell you, you had better worry at that point. Let me give you the last thing. It's the realization of the loss of intimacy with God. Now, God's forgiven them. God says, I'm going, listen, you're going to go, but now here, here comes something. I'm going to walk you through this. They're going to come to the realization of the lost intimacy with God. Verse 7. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Now, don't confuse this with the tabernacle. Tabernacle has not been made as of yet. God, by this time, wanted them to have a tabernacle. That tabernacle was going to be in the midst of Israel. That is, there would be three tribes to the north, three to the east, three to the west, and three to the south. And the tabernacle would sit right square in the middle of the entire nation of the Hebrews. This is a tent. This is just a regular tent of meeting that Moses sets up outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, which shows the people that God's presence can't come into the midst of sin. A good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. But in this passage, you're going to figure out quickly, nobody goes out there but Moses and Joshua. They don't go to worship. They would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses uh, went out to um, the tent that the people would arise, stand, each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like that, I start looking at verbs. Look at these three verbs that are here. They arise, they stand, they gaze. They're watching. The whole emphasis there, they're watching Moses worship. They're watching Moses go to worship. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. By the way, Moses is the first prophet in all the Word of God. Now, I know we talk about Noah being a prophet, and in a sense he was, but Moses, in the sense of an Old Testament prophet, was the first of the Old Testament. And God spoke to him in a way he never spoke to any other prophet. He spoke to him face to face. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Now, do you see how far away they are from worship? You see, you see the great distance way off out there, about a mile down the road where, where the old church is, there was a tent set up down there. And that's where the preacher, Moses, would go all the way down there. And all of the people would stand up here. And they would watch him. Level ground. We're, we're not in Alabama. You're out in the wilderness now. Level ground. They could see for a long ways. And they could see that tent of meeting. They could see the presence of God come down. What happened when God's presence came down? There was what? The shining of the Shekinah glory of God. They could see the light out there. 
They could see Moses just disappear into that tent and into the light of God where God came. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from then. Joshua stayed on out there praying. Moses said to the Lord, now can you just see this? Moses walks through the camp of Israel on his way out to the tent to worship. It's like you driving out of your neighborhood on your way to church. Everybody out there in the pajamas picking up the newspaper, watching you drive to church. And they all get to the doorway. Word passes through the whole of the camp of Israel. Moses is going to worship. Moses is going to worship. Moses is going to worship. So they all come out of their tent and they stand and they watch. And Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I've found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is, stop telling me they're my people. They are your people, God. They are your people. And he said, watch this. Now, God's going to respond. You've got to watch this response now. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Well, didn't God just tell him that God, he would go with him? God said, that's exactly right. Is a lady that answered that. That's exactly right. When God says, I will go with you, that's the first person singular. I'll go with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, you've got to go with third person, plural, us, or second person, plural, us. You got to go with us. You just can't go with me. It's not enough for you just to go with me. You've got to go with us. That's Moses. Once again, interceding for the very people that had basically had forgotten his name in chapter 32, verse, verse, uh, verse uh, one. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land, we don't know what's happened. We don't even know him. I think his name was Moses, that man that brought us up. They had come to the place where they acted like they not only did not know God, they didn't know Moses. And yet here is Moses still in conversation with God saying, okay, you're not going to kill him, but you got to go with us. All right, I'll go with you. Moses said, not enough. You got to go with us. It's not enough for me. to go with God while I'm pastor of this church by myself. I want you to go. I wish I could have every single person whose name is on the roll of this church so that I could look at them like I'm looking at you and tell you I don't want to go with God alone. I want to go with God, yes, but I want to go with God with you, just who you are, just 
wonderful you. I've not sought to take this church off in some kind of explosive church growth. I've not talked about numbers to you. I've not talked about buildings to you. I've not talked about all the things in trying to build some kind of ministry that will get me to the top of some kind of totem pole in some kind of convention. All I've been interested in is walking with you these past five years and walking with you for the days that God leaves to us. That we will walk together. Not just me, not just me and one or two of you. Listen to me. All of you that are here, you matter. You say, when a preacher, you don't even know me. Well, whose fault is that? That's yours. He's just one of me. Come see me. Come bring me a cake, pie or something. I'll get to know you better that way. Bring a Krispy Kreme. Don't come empty handed. That, and that's the whole of this chapter right here. Where are you going to go in the future? Where are you going to head out? Who are you trusting to lead you as you go? And Lord knows, don't trust me to do it. I keep telling God, God, these are your people. They're not my people. You're not my people. In a sense, you are. But it, in the real sense, you're not. I didn't die for you. I wasn't crucified for you. I, I didn't get up out of a tomb for you. When I get up out of a tomb, I'm headed for Jesus. I ain't headed for anybody else. So where are you going to go in the future? Where are you going to go? It, it matters. The, the presence of God. Or the, and that all comes back down to your heart. I'm going to tell you a story. I told this at the funeral yesterday. Let me just conclude it with this. Michelangelo is probably, without a doubt, the greatest artist and sculptor that ever lived. He considered himself a sculptor. He did not consider himself an art artist. But he painted, you know, that massive Sistine Chapel, uh, all of that, and, of course, the other things that he painted. This is the Pieta. If you walk into St. Peter's Basilica... Um, and, and you walk through those massive doors and you turn immediately to the right. There is a chapel there and this Michelangelo's PM, the most famous, this is one of the most famous pieces of sculpture in history. The David he carved, the Moses he carved, and this Pieta. Uh, the Pieta is an Italian word for pity. Here is Mary holding the lifeless body of Jesus as they took him off the cross. I can't tell you, you can't see it in a picture, but if you can stand there and look at that, you can see veins, how he carved out muscles, how he sculpted out veins. It is, it is so incredible a work that you're left really with no words to explain it, to express it. He did that in one year, that right there with a hammer and a chisel. Now let me show you the last 12 years of his life. Donnie uh, Pieta. He worked on that right there for 12 years and quit. Uh, that is a Pieta as well. That's Jesus, that's Mary holding, trying to stand the body of Jesus back up. You see the detached arm of Jesus here. Do you see, you can, you can see where at points, do you see the vein up there in the crook of his arm? You, you can, if you can see that from where you are, boy, let me go to your eye doctor. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, there, there that is. He worked on that for 12 years. He worked on it all day long, six days before he died. Six days before he died, he walked away from that thing. He walked away from it, having worked on it for 12 years, and that's all he got out of it. And the reason why is because of the stone. The stone here, the marble here, was so full of different types of stone. So many different uh, types of minerals was in that that it made it nearly impossible to sculpt. That every time he would hit it with a chisel and a hammer, it would spark. Sparks would fly. And so for 12 years, he tried to bring out of the stone a piece of artwork, but you can see all the chisel marks all over it. And that's all you see, the chisel marks of a great sculptor, probably the greatest sculptor that ever lived. But that's all he could do with that. And he walks away from it. And I almost wonder if that's not why he just went back to his room, he laid down and he died. You know, that's the story of your life. The story of your life is this, is that here you are in the hand of God. And God is continuously trying to chip away the things that you don't need in your life. But so many of us walk away with just chisel marks and with no features but the chisel marks. You can see where God has attempted, but we are so hard, we won't let him have his way with us. To the point to where we will say to God, either have thine own way with me, or God will eventually end up saying, you have your own way. I'm done. Who's going to lead you into tomorrow? Through repentance, we can know again the presence of God. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.